0: This is Matt. This is Tony. And this is What Did We Miss? A podcast where we get around to resolving our pop culture blind spots, one episode at a time. Yeah, all right. So, yeah, how have you been? I've been okay. Yourself? Yeah, not bad. Are you enjoying the snow?
1: uh, I'm disappointed by the snow. This is, it's been a pretty, as far as winters in New England go, it's been pretty, pretty mild for snow. But it seems like every time we've gotten any, the forecast has been a complete panic and then... Uh nothing as a result nothing
0: happens as a homeowner. How do you feel about shoveling it's uh it's fine,
1: you know we don't um, my wife and I tend to park as close to the sidewalk in our driveway as we can, so I have as little to shovel as possible, mm-hmm. and several of my neighbors have snow blowers, so they'll take care of the sidewalk a lot of the time. nice, yeah, it's just you know it's just a thing. It's not like we had a winter what four years ago now, five where every week for like six weeks we got a foot and a half of snow oh i remember that yeah yeah um to the point where the boston globe in like june had an article on their website saying <laughs> the last of the snow is finally melted and uh, you know some parking lot where <laughs> yeah. there's a, a huge mountain of it and it took months and months to go away but
0: um when i was young and i lived at home i was the de facto shoveler in the house uh so If there was like an hour delay, my dad would be like, oh, perfect. You have time to shovel the driveway. And our driveway is like a hill. So the top of it is probably like three car lengths across. And and then it goes, the length of it is probably like maybe six to seven cars. It gets narrow as it goes down. You can only fit like one car at the bottom. But so needless to say, it's a bear to, to shovel. So as soon as I moved out, I was just like, I... You know, fuck it. I never want to do something like this because it's always just like, go shovel, go shovel. And I remember the first time I moved out, I'm in my apartment and, you know, the landlord pays to have it plowed. And I call up my mom. I'm like, hey, mom, guess what I'm not doing right now? And she's like, oh, that's great. Your father just bought a snowblower. <laughs> and I was so angry. Right. I was like, why couldn't you buy one when I lived at the house? But no. And that's my childhood in a nutshell. Sure. And that snowblower is
1: to make his life easier, not yours. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. So, mm -hmm. and then I guess my brother did it for a while. My mom always claimed she did it, but, you know, I I don't see any evidence.
1: Yeah. I've got a really small, you know, postage stamp of, of property. So there's not a lot to shovel, uh, you know, just the walkway and the sidewalk and then, you know, raking and stuff takes me about an hour.
0: That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't slip on my way up the walkway. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, good job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, uh, is there anything that you've been, um, you know, any art or pop culture that you've been uh, watching, listening to, et cetera, et cetera?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So every every year, the Brattle Theater, which is this really cool independent um, movie theater in Cambridge. Uh, they call themselves Boston's unofficial film school. Uh, they do their, uh, they do their Bugs Bunny film festival. So I got to see that, uh, this past weekend. So it was an hour and a half of old Looney Tunes, uh, on 35 millimeter. Nice. Um, and what was really fun was that there were a ton of kids, really little kids. And they, like, they loved it. They were just, you know, besides themselves giggling for the whole, the whole time, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Um. You know, I know as when I was a kid that it was on Nickelodeon all the time, Looney Tunes. There was always a good, you know, hour or two block of it. And so it was always around. And I don't know. I mean, I guess there's Boomerang, which is Cartoon Network's sort of retro network. But I um I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen those old cartoons on TV. So I was wondering if it, you know, still had any meaning to to little kids away like you know i, I was, was there a always, lot of kids yeah there were a bunch of them um that's great yeah and i was always more of a looney tunes kid than a disney kid i think growing up. yeah um so that was fun i finally got around to seeing uh stop making sense oh so which good it's great yeah a lot of fun and so i've been listening to a lot of talking heads the last oh, week oh great or so.
2: mm-hmm.
0: yesterday meg and i watched um this movie called bonjour uh tristesse which, oh, which is uh by um Otto Preminger. Okay. It's from 1958. uh, And it stars Gene Seenberg, who's probably better known for um, Godard's Breathless. She's the one with like the pixie haircut, probably made that famous. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it also stars Deborah Kerr and David Niven. And -hmm. they're kind of on the French Riviera. And David Niven plays Gene Seenberg's father. And they have this weird relationship. They're more like friends that go to parties together. Uh, because the they don't really explain it, but the mother's not in the picture, and Deborah Kerr kind of sh- shows up, and she's this woman of David Niven's age, and their relationship starts to blossom. And then Gene Seymour, the daughter, kind of gets uh, a little jealous of it, and it's a pretty interesting movie, especially for its time, and its sexual politics are pretty. It, they talk around a lot of about how they're all promiscuous, and gotcha. and the father talks to his daughter about you know, her relationships and vice versa and stuff like that. And that's not something you see very often. And the ending is kind of pretty, it's pretty dark, uh, but it's, it's cool. It's, I I would really recommend it. It's really good. Oh, neat. I saw Alita Battle Angel. Oh yeah. Which is um, James Cameron, Robert Re- Rodriguez adaptation of the anime uh, and manga um, from the nineties. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, kind of stupid, big budget spectacle, but the spectacle stuff kind of won me over
1: mm-hmm. is um is her so the the lead character they give her through cg um the big anime eyes is it as yeah. distracting throughout the movie as it seems to be in promotional stuff for it or? i
0: mean once you're in it i was kind of like okay i i get it you know i don't know if it was a wise decision but it didn't bug me mm-hmm. but i can see it being like a block on other people but there's lots of other cyborg characters that have bodies that are fully um i guess animated um and and so you kind of buy into it
1: yeah i think you know what i think is so sort of off putting about it um specifically on like a poster is that it's just just a static image and you're drawn to it and you're just kind of staring at this one thing that yeah just looks really I imagine once it's move, once the yeah. character's moving it's it's less distracting.
0: Yeah, and there are some shots of the texture of her face that are just remarkable. I was just like, wow. It's crazy. You know, obviously we're not quite there with a lot of CGI, you know. There's still some wonky stuff there and it's not like you're still aware that you're watching a computer. Um but you know, we're getting there. Yeah. And actually, oh, this will
1: segue nicely into what we're going to talk about today. Um, but we talked about this very briefly. But Nintendo announced they're remaking Links Awakening for the Switch. Yeah, uh, and we both seem to agree that that was uh, one of our favorites. Oh yeah, um, I can't.
0: Yeah. I can't wait for the remake.
1: Yeah, it's such a weird game. Yeah, um, it's been a long time. So I remember getting it when it came out, and I didn't beat it until I was in high school. So it was. I remember being stuck on a specific point for, like, a decade and feeling really stupid once I figured out what the thing what it was. was. But uh, but to that point, I didn't mind just sort of wandering around what little of the world I was able to get to. And, yeah, it's just so strange, and I can't speak for... I know there are a bunch of other handheld Zelda games, like mm-hmm. for the DS uh, and whatnot, but uh, this this one is sort of singular among the the main titles because it's zelda's not in it it's not about hyrule and yeah it's just a very i wish they would be as adventurous and maybe they have been with the other ones i just uh yeah and who knows maybe that's another episode but uh yeah yeah, it's it's, i'm glad to see it getting getting some love i did dust off my game boy and there's no way i'm gonna play through it on (laughs) on that screen i think that's the reason why i have glasses at this point it's a lot of a lot of squinting when i was a kid
0: yeah, so let's.
1: Uh, what's the subject for today? So today we are talking about the wonderful Wizard of Oz,
0: the book. The book, yeah. The book, yeah. So. Released in 1900.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of old. I think that was kind of lost on me, maybe. Yeah. only, And we're going to get into it. My real only frame of reference for any of the Oz stuff was the 1939 MGM movie. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because even beyond that movie, Oz is such, man, such an important uh, reference point in, you know, I can only really speak to American culture, but I mean, there is, there are, there's shorthand in our language that directly references that and sort of goes beyond needing to know that context. You know yeah. what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. When we were talking about the queen... Uh... It was hard to remember when we heard specific songs. And I think you could say the same thing about the MGM musical. I don't remember the first time watching it. It's just, it was there. Its popularity is probably due to the fact that it was like uh, almost like a Christmas staple. It was like on TV every year, maybe around like Thanksgiving or so. Jeez. I want to say it was around the holidays. I I
1: don't remember when it was specifically. I was. But it was a thing, that annual broadcast um, and looking into the history and my dates are kind of wrong here, but like the cliff notes are, it was released in theaters. It was played on TV once. It was played on TV again, maybe in the late Mm fifties. And then from then on, it was an annual event and they would have um, hosts. Like I know Dick Van Dyke was one of the hosts. I think Angela Lansbury at one point, but they would sort of uh, bookend and introduce the movie, mm-hmm. and it was this annual staple and I think there are there are other movies like that too, like the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. uh sound of music um but Wizard of Oz, I remember being um the big deal, and yeah, I think that was a tradition you know if that's if that timing is right you know the the sixties is when that started becoming a mm-hmm. uh, an annual thing that 's right for our parents to have grown up with that as, a, you know, a once in a, once a year treat and then mm-hmm. something they sort of passed on to us. And I, you know, I think by the end of the nineties, it kind of fizzled out. Um, I think 1980 was when it was actually released on home video. So that sort of, um, once, once it's out on video, then the, that significance of the annual broadcast becomes less and less. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's such a, um, you know, and as we were reading the, the book and thinking about it, um, there's that scene in a Christmas story where they go to the Christmas parade and all the Oz characters are there. And I remember as a, a younger person thinking that that was an odd choice for some reason. I guess I didn't appreciate how all consuming Oz was and like as I was older and sort of was able to look into things a little bit more, realized
0: there are plenty of movies from the 30s that are very influential now. Um and and movies that we talk about uh, or people maybe are aware of, like Gone with the Wind and obviously the universal horror movies, but I don't know if there's one movie that more people have seen from the 30s than The Wizard of Oz. I think that's probably, as far as classic films go, the one that more people have probably seen.
1: Right. I mean, it is really, you know, a, a true family movie. Um, you know, you can't. <laughs> I can't imagine a mom and dad sitting down with their like six-year-old be like, we're watching Gone with the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great. The, I mean, the movie is just so uh, magical and attractive. I mean, everything looks like candy once they get to Oz. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I was saying, you know, parents growing up with that annual broadcast of it and then sitting down with their kids. And yeah, I, th- I think it is tailored towards that sort of um, – cross-generational appeal yeah. in a lot of ways that those other influential movies might not be um
0: but there's something else uh to be said about you know oz in general and you know going back to the book uh it was a success it was the biggest um children's book of its time and uh there were some early advancements in the printing process that led them to be able to print color pictures with the book and. Um, But right from the get-go, it was successful, and he adapted it into stage plays. And then he started his own movie production company to get it made, and there are several serials made based on Oz stories that are lost to time, unfortunately. Uh, And then there was another one after that uh, in 1925, and that actually um, stars uh, Oliver Hardy from Laurel and Hardy fame. Oh. He plays the Tin Man. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, And that one's not very good. And then there's the... 1930s one which is obviously iconic at this point point. and then they tried to uh, make one in the 60s called The Wonderful Land of Oz and then there's an animated one in um, 1974 and that one's called Journey Back to Oz and that one has Liza Minnelli as Dorothy and Mickey Rooney as a scarecrow Milton Berle as the Cowardly Lion Margaret Hamilton plays Aunt Em and Ethel Merman plays Mambi, which is, which is in one of the sequel books Uh, And then there's the 1976 Australian movie called Oz, which is like a rock opera version of it. And then they tried to do it again in 1978 with The Wiz, which by Sidley Lamette, starring Diana Ross and obviously Michael Jackson. And then 1985, there was Return to Oz. And then in 2013, they did Oz the Great and Powerful. In addition to that, there's comics adaptations, there's plays, there's musicals, there's a whole adaptation of it in Russia that's taken on its life of its own. Um, and even L. Frank Baum, he wrote 14 Oz books. And then after he died, they wrote enough, there's now over 40 official Oz books, but people still write their own versions of Oz. So it's been in the conscious public consciousness forever. And it keeps coming because it's kind of like a lot of modern popular culture like comic books and and Star Wars and stuff where a lot of people want to do their own versions of this. For me, I kind of realized, you know, we talked about when we um, did the THX episode about how important Star Wars was to us. My wife, Meg, her Star Wars was the Wizard of Oz. So for me, a lot of this is kind of like filling in that blank. Because of her. Um, we have countless Oz stuff in our apartment. A lot of it is is bought for us by uh, my father-in-law. But we have books and comics and plates and glasses and ornaments and ruby red slipper doorstops, uh, artwork. Uh, and And I think one of the main things about Wizard of Oz is the same thing that maybe drew us to star Wars. And that's this, you know, lone kid that maybe sees more in life or wants more. And then goes on this great adventure, gets swept up in this thing. And that, that is an Oz too, you know? Yeah.
1: And do you know, do you know, did you ever ask Meg what it is about wizard of Oz that, uh, that she's gra- that she gravitates to?
0: Yeah. I think it's, it's just like what I just said. It's that, um, It's that other world. Mm -hmm. It's this, you have this life and that fantasy of this other place where you go on these adventures and that travels to her modern life now where, you know, she loves to to travel. That's part of that kind of ingrained in her or there's always something else. Um, She loves Alice in Wonderland too. And that's also another, you know, type of story about discovering a world beyond your own. I think that's the connective tissue there and she's always kind of loved that and it's always just kind of like if we land in another country that's like she calls like her Oz moment almost like where her eyes kind of like light up you know when Dorothy arrives in, in Oz and stuff yeah. and I think that was the, always the appeal to her.
1: Yeah I, I think you know um, to, to sort of bring it back to something we've talked about before um, the the Star Wars connection when I read the book there's an introduction that L. Frank Baum writes, and he talks about how he felt like American kids needed to do fairy tales. Now that uh, morality was being taught in school and the old fairy tales didn't necessarily need to do that legwork, he wanted to create something that was sort of not necessarily free of moral lessons, but maybe free of the, um, you know, some of the, like the grim fairy tales could be very bleak or scary. And he just wanted to create something magical that was just made to entertain kids because mm-hmm. he felt like now they're they were being given the tools elsewhere to sort of um, to learn those life lessons. So this was his way of uh, creating something that was just a, a way for them to escape, um, which is interesting because I know when I when I was a kid and I got the Star Wars trilogy on tape, there's like a, a handwritten note from George Lucas kind of scribbled on the side of it, and he, it, he says very much the same thing that these were his fairy tales for a new generation of kids who, um, you know, were looking for something new. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was the first thing I thought of.
0: So L. Frank Baum was born in uh, 1856, died in 1919. Mm -hmm. He wrote Oz when he was 44.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He had had a really interesting life. Um, And, you know, as I was reading a bit about him, there were several Points that I think are worth noting. He was Born with a Heart Defect. He um went to and um and dropped out of military school, never got his high school diploma. He traveled all over the country and he ran theaters, uh, wrote and directed performances, like you mentioned. All of those things sort of feed into five of the characters from mm-hmm. the original book. So Born with a Heart Defect, the Tin Man is looking for a heart. Uh, the military school thing, the lion felt that he lacked courage, didn't have a diploma. Scarecrow needed a brain. Dorothy, the traveler Oz becoming a showman who wasn't really what he was presenting himself as. And, Mm -hmm. um, I always, I I always like looking for these elements of a creator's life that then become baked into their most, uh, enduring work.
0: The, um, International Wizard of Oz Club, which you can find at ozclub.org, describes Oz as, um, before achieving literary immortality at age 44 with the publication of the wonderful Wizard of Oz in 1900, he had been a reporter, a printer, an actor, a poultry breeder, an editor, a theater manager, a playwright the proprietor of a frontier general store and newspaper, a traveling salesman, a short story writer, and a pioneer in the field of commercial window displays. Yep. So this guy did everything. He really did. Uh, eventually, uh, his mother-in-law, who's a f- prominent suffragist, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, uh, who convinced him that he should write down the stories that he was telling to his kids. And that kind of led to him writing a bunch of children's stories from... He wrote one of, like about Mother Goose... That yeah, preceded the Wizard of Oz. He wrote a bunch of yeah. of children's stories, but Oz was really the one. Oz that... was the one that took off and and became huge. And he wrote, uh, I believe, six of them. And then he's like, "Nope, that's it. I'm done. This is the last one." And then he started writing some other books, and they weren't successful. Uh, and he kind of <laughs> he kind of knew where the money was, so he went back to Oz and he wrote fourteen in total before he died.
1: Yeah, the introduction to the edition that I read. Um talks about the sequels and it really seems like he avoided it for as long as he could. And it really wasn't until he needed, you know, they were, they were hard on cash that he, he kind of went back to what he knew was going to sell.
0: Yeah. Um, it's interesting too, because the second one, and we'll talk more about this later. Uh, but the second one does not have Dorothy at all. Um, and then the fans were like, where's Dorothy. And then, so obviously, she pops up in, in following ones. There is this kind of like push and pull. He even wrote books under uh, pseudonyms in order to um, to try and have some more success, but the Oz books always pulled him back. Yeah. But he, I mean, maybe he tried to get away from it, but he was also trying to do, like he tried to adapt uh, the, the sequel Marvelous Land of Oz as a play in addition to, well, he did a play for The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, but then he also did The Marvelous Land of Oz and stuff. So... He was always dipping into that well. Um, so I think it was kind of like... He definitely loved it, you know?
1: Oh, I, 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 I yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I, my, the impression I got was he really, if not actively resisted, didn't immediately write a sequel until he recognized there was demand and then personal need to do it. Yeah. And I think once he had done that and succeeded with it, you know, kept going. Um, and then something about the backstory of Oz that made me think of other, uh, contemporary is not the right word considering that, uh, (laughs) some of these people are dead at this point. (laughs) Um, the illustrations in the original were by WW Denslow and he and Baum had a falling out over, uh, disagreements about, uh, I think it was specifically about the, the stage play Denslow didn't think he was getting, uh, enough credit or money for it. Um, And it seemed like there was uh, some discrepancy over whose contribution to the mythology of Oz was responsible for its success, the illustrations or the the writing. And as I'm reading that, I'm immediately thinking of guys like Stan Lee, who um, tend to get the lion's share of the credit for uh, creating these iconic characters, while the artists tend to take a a backseat in the more... uh, and the larger public consciousness.
0: You know, he had other illustrators after um, Winslow. It was yeah. Denslow. Sorry. Winslow. Not from uh, family matters. Is that Winslow? Carl, Winzo, Carl yep. Winslow. Carl mm-hmm. Winslow. Yeah. Um, he, he had to uh, use other illustrators uh, afterwards too. Uh, I, I don't know. I think the, the writing on the books is so specific though, that I don't know if I draw a, a com- you know, a complete parallel to Stanley. Cause I think, you know, Jack Kirby and, and, um, Steve Ditko's contributions are just massive. Uh, um, whereas I think one thing about Oz is like those illustrations that de- from the original book definitely set a tone and, uh, were influential. Um, I think more people associate the visuals from the movie than they do from the original book.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, at the end of the, I think it's a, Denslow's arguments and a moot point by the time the film comes out, but. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, but I mean, bomb was dead by then, so <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, um, but it is one of those things where uh, again, like it's so influential that there are t- tons of people and illustrators that are still doing oz based things um but it's such a visual world, and the characters are so visual and unique, unlike most fantasy stuff uh it doesn't really kind of stick to um well I, fantasy has kind of become its own subgenre in a sense where it's about dragons uh you know dragons and and orcs and knights and magic and stuff and this is a different form of fantasy that doesn't seem to be like when you mention fantasy a lot of times people don't automatically jump to something like this maybe
1: right when i think fantasy i think lord of the rings i think harry potter yeah um Game of Thrones, you know, those, those exist on a spectrum and that spectrum has
0: castles and dragons, I guess. (laughs) And Um, there are elements of that in these, but like there are really unique elements to them.
1: No, I mean, it feels more, it feels closer to an Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, Um, Well, let's just get into the differences of the book and, um, and the movie, um, because I think that's the best way to kind of maybe talk about this, I guess. Right. I mean, everyone knows the story of Wizard of Oz. So, I mean, I guess we can sum it up by maybe one of um, my favorite kind of um, descriptions of the story. And this was in a, a Turner Classic movie listing and it, uh, by the writer Rick Polito. And he wrote, transported to a surreal landscape, a young girl kills the first person she meets and then teams up with three strangers to kill again. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, that made, that made the Internet. Rounds a while back, and yeah. it's great, it was funny, and and uh, so uh, but everyone knows the story of the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but the book starts off. Um, one of the things that I found interesting was that it describes Kansas as being very gray, right? And that they're unhappy, <laughs> they're very unhappy. Like, Aunt Em is unhappy, Uncle Henry's not very happy. They describe them looking gray, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was pretty great that the movie. Its choice of going from it's not great sepia uh, but going from that to the technicolor
1: right but it is it is arguably the movie's most iconic element is is her walking out of the the sepia toned house into yeah. this technicolored dreamscape and i was really surprised that it's in the book
0: yeah um but it gets rid of all of the uh the characters that are stand-ins for characters in us. So there's no Mrs. Gulch. Uh, and um, there's no... Mr. Marvelous, sir,
1: or Mr. Marvel... What is the wizard? Yeah. He's like a traveling know. circus performer kind yeah. of
0: guy. And none of the Tin Man and um, Cowardly Lion and Scarecrow um, stand-ins either. They're, none of them are there. It's basically Dorothy's uh, at her the farm in Kansas... And then they say, hey, there's a tornado, and then she chases after Toto, and then that's it. She's in Kansas. Right. I which, mean, she's in us. Right. Sorry.
1: Um, and I guess that element of the movie was was the idea of someone who didn't think audiences would buy the magic. They're like, oh, audiences are too savvy and and, and want something real, so it has to be a dream. Yeah. So that, I, which is, I don't know, which is crazy. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um but, yeah, no, I mean, not, not the, the, that book ending doesn't exist in the book.
0: Yeah, so when she gets to Oz, she doesn't meet Glinda. She meets the Witch of the North, the Good Witch of the North. Mm-hmm. And a compliment of three whole munchkins. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then she, she makes her way. Well, I mean, obviously, the, Witch of, the Good Witch of the North kind of gives her spiel and is just like essentially the same thing. Like, you should go see Oz. Um, mm-hmm. But they refer to him as Oz the Great and Terrible uh which I love. I think it's great. The biggest difference is that they're not ruby slippers, they're silver slippers. And I think for uh they they chose ruby slippers for the movie because of the Technicolor uh filming in Technicolor. Yeah, make it Yeah, it make pop. it pop.
1: Yeah. Again, a little surprised by how sort of quiet her arrival in Oz is, whereas in the film who literally Munchkin's just coming out of the scenery. Um yeah. and she's sort of surrounded by this um town uh and here it's a very it's a very subtle sort of introduction to the world and it sort of opens up to her as she enters each successive uh country i guess they kind of yeah. phrase them as, as countries but like the different landscapes of oz sort of open up the world
0: to her yeah uh, she, she does kill inadvertently kill oh um, right yeah that
1: stays the same she, yeah, land, she her house falls on the witch
0: yeah the wicked witch of the east no relation to the wicked witch of the west and I believe the movie says there's, does the movie say they're sisters? It must because that's, or is that one of the sequels? I'm trying to no, remember. Uh,
1: Cause that's a, that's certainly a trope of people. Yeah. Um, there's a line in a movie where someone says like, uh, someone must have dropped a house on her sister to yeah. suggest that someone
0: yeah. is a witch. Um, <laughs> Megan, and I say that to each other all the time. I say, be gone or I'll drop a house on you <laughs> before someone drops a house on you. Sorry. Uh, and then she's often, she, she runs into some more munchkins mm-hmm. on her way. So she's like going through the, the town, I guess. And then she meets the, the scarecrow.
1: What what I found really interesting about her encounter with the scarecrow is that he's only a couple of days old. Yeah. So this idea and this carries through, you know, to the other two companions is that the thing they're lacking is they're just taking it very literally. So the scarecrow is not dumb he's just young. Uh and he proves very quickly that he's very clever and resourceful but um there's a line actually that I there's a line that I want to read. So he's very young and at first he's scaring the crows like he's supposed to and then one older crow kind of shows up and and recognizes that he's not real, that he's not a real man and just sits and eats corn anyway. He's not scared off and scarecrow says uh, I felt sad of this for it showed I was not such a good scarecrow after all, but the old crow comforted me saying, if you only had brains in your head, you'd be as good a man as any of them and a better man than some of them. So again, he's just, he's too young to know that the crow is not speaking literally. And he sort of, and he sort of gets it in his head that he, he's lacking something. And-
0: yeah. He says at one point, he's just like, Oh, well, at first I didn't know how to speak because I didn't know what the point of a mouth was. But I think broadly speaking, like that kind of, that that's the whole book. That's how all the characters speak. They speak as if they don't, almost as if they're all children, like everyone, they don't have the information. Well, of course I didn't do that because I'm this. And almost these, they're speaking in kind of like these philosophical kind of aphorisms. Um, uh, like these little kind of witty philosophical musings. It's really, I, I think what makes the book work, uh, it's really charming. I have a quote from, um, from this part too, where he says, it is such an uncomfortable thing to know one is a fool. Um, and <laughs> that's feels like something that could possibly be in a fortune cookie. And the book is littered with those. Right. And then Dorothy also says to him at one point, because he doesn't understand why she wants to go home. Cause they're in this beautiful Like this, this place is amazing. Why would you want to leave here? And she says, that is because you have no brains. Um, No matter how dreary and gray our homes are, we people of flesh would rather live there than in any other country, be it ever so beautiful. There is no place like home. And I think that's the only time she says there's no place like home in the whole book. Uh, and which is such a iconic phrase, uh, we were talking earlier about how so much of the, the the movie is in the lexicon of our language and that no, there's no place like home um, is, is one of them. And <laughs> that's like the only mef- reference specifically to there's no place like home.
1: Yeah. And there's I noticed a lot of things like that. There are things that he wrote that sort of rematerialized in a different context in the movie. You know, later we'll talk about these monsters that they encounter that weren't in the movie, but they have the head of a tiger and the body of a bear. Uh, the, the, the lion seems afraid of them. And the Kalida? Yeah. Yeah. And they sort of, you know, lions and tigers and bears. all yeah. my sort of comes yeah. back as a refrain in the movie.
0: I think that the book, uh, the, the movie does a great job of cherry picking these elements and combining things and and doing its kind of own thing with it while mm-hmm. still remaining true to what the book was because you know the character speaks uh similarly in in the movie um but that's what i loved about the book is the way the characters spoke it was almost like it was refreshing like when you talk to a little kid and they're looking at the world in a specific way where we just assume people have that information and these characters are constantly talking to each other just like well you don't know better because you don't have a brain um But one thing I did want to talk about while I was reading this is because all these characters have these moments. You know, the Scarecrow, oh, I I wish I had a brain, but he exhibits throughout the whole book that he's the smartest one. And same thing with the Tin Man. And I was curious, do you think this book is is stealthily about (laughs) self-esteem? Because so much of this is about these people that they just don't have the confidence, you know? know? Yeah, I mean... Or the frame of reference for it.
1: Right, and that's a very... um powerful theme in the movie too is that like you have within you the capacity to do great things yeah. or you have what you think you're missing. And even though in that introduction uh that I mentioned earlier he talks about not wanting to you know create something that was a lesson for kids but an entertainment, I mean this it's still full of them. Um mm. the idea that the tin man is lacking a physical heart means he's also lacking you know, the, the more metaphorical heart that he, that he's looking for. He's, he doesn't, he's not looking for an organ. He's looking for compassion and he thinks mm-hmm. he's incapable of it. But, you know, at one point they're walking along and he, he accidentally steps on a bug and oh, gets lo- very upset I about I it. I
0: love that moment. Um, Yeah. He steps on this bug and he's just like, well, if I had a heart, I wouldn't have to worry about stepping on a bug, but because I don't have a heart, I have to worry about this, which is, Feels like the exact opposite. Right. It's such a beautiful little moment.
1: Yeah. And even the lion is terrified, but he knows that he but he is able to pretend that he's not. And he somehow thinks there's a difference. And yeah. I love any time something plays with the difference between fearlessness and bravery. I, I love that because uh bravery does not exclude fear. Like yeah. A truly brave person is afraid and able to to recognize their own shortcomings and do something in the face of adversity. Anyway, fearlessness tends to be reckless or dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what the, the lion is brave. He's full of courage. What he thinks he needs is fearlessness. And he doesn't recognize that the value of one over the other.
0: Well, he, he thinks he's a coward because people are afraid of him. Uh, <laughs> which is a, another lovely little turn of phrase, a little, little nice little moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to talk about, before we get to, you know, we're talking about the lion, the scarecrow, and the Tin Man, obviously, uh, but uh, I I think we should talk about the Tin Man's origin, because I think it's just so weird. And oh, yeah.
1: He's the first, is he, he might be the first cyberpunk hero.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, he was in love with a munchkin, uh, and uh, a, a, a witch put a spell on him, and he was using his oh, axe. On the axe. On the axe. And then he's using the axe, and... It went and it slipped and chopped off his leg. Just one leg. And then uh, he went to see the tinsman and the tinsman gave him a tin leg. And this kept happening until he lost his whole body. It's just, it's so morbid and and strange. Uh, I love it.
1: Yeah, and then he, you know, talks about it wasn't until he was rusted for a year and he couldn't move that he was able to reflect on what he was missing. He sort of lost touch maybe with what he was really aspiring to as he got all these upgrades and he's like, Oh, that's, f- I can do anything. And he kind of got a little cocky. And then, yeah, when he was stuck in one position, he was able to, to think
0: back. Throughout the book too, there's always these moments of, um, each of the four main characters kind of saying what, like, why do you need brains? A heart is more important. Why do you need courage? Uh, when brains are more important and stuff. But one of my favorite exchanges is between the Tin Man and, and the Scarecrow um, and it goes, um, all the same said the scarecrow, I shall ask for brains instead of a heart for a fool would not know what to do with a heart. If he had one, I shall take the heart returned The tin woodsman for brains do not make one happy and happiness is the best thing in the world. <laughs> uh, two little, I guess, little aphorisms, you know? Yeah. I-, I love those little, like all these little philosophical little musics here and there in mm-hmm. the margins of the whole book. It's great. Right. So once they collect everybody, um, the witch is, you know, she's not trying to get the shoes. The Wicked Witch of the West is not trying to get the shoes back. No, she's
1: she's, she's not completely absent yeah. um, in in ways that she's not in the movie. Yeah. Um,
0: and, and there's more of a journey to get to Oz too. Like they come across a giant ditch that they have to to get across. And they, they come across the Kalidas, which are the part lion no part
1: part... bear part tiger and they they breathe fire
0: maybe or yeah and then there's the
1: the mouse queen
0: yep yep well they fall the the lion falls asleep in the poppies
1: oh right yeah the lion yeah
0: and so like the poppies the witch has nothing to do with the poppies like she does in the the movie where she's like poppies will make them sleep that was really good (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so the the lion just falls asleep in him because he's so big and, right. and, and almost dies almost dies and the tin man and the scarecrow are fine because they don't breathe
1: <laughs> right there, there, there's a couple of instances where the fact that they are inanimate creatures sort of plays as an advantage like them keeping watch at night because I don't need yeah to sleep. they don't
0: sleep they don't eat they don't need any of those things I love the way they talk about it too they're just like yeah I don't need that. It's fine it's just so nonchalant mm-hmm. but uh, they say of uh, the lion asleep in the poppies uh, well, the Tin Woodsman, he goes, we can do nothing for him for he is much too heavy to lift. We must leave him here to sleep forever. And perhaps he will dream that he has found courage at last. Bleak. Shit's dark. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine being a little kid reading that in 1900.
1: There is so much terror associated with the, the legacy of the Wizard of Oz. Yes, you that's know? true. Um, I, I remember you know, kids being afraid of the witch. Or um, even the forest, I remember, scared some of my friends when we I were younger. I was scared of it
0: when I was a little kid. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: it's very, you know, it, it doesn't shy away from the dangers of, no. of the world. Uh, but then, like, you get in, like, as you get older and you start to sort of learn about, you know, the the rumor that you can see a, a munchkin yeah. who, uh, one of the actors who played a munchkin who had hung himself or something yeah. in the forest or uh, all these other kind of dark uh, anecdotes about the making of the film and sort of makes it exciting. You know, when you're, you're a jaded teenager, it's a reason to maybe revisit it and see things that aren't there. That
0: and watching it along with Dark Side of the Moon.
1: Yeah. Did you ever try that? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Did did it ever quote unquote work?
0: I was never like, oh my, it's not like, whoa, man, my brain is melting. It's just like, okay, this is, I like Dark Side and I like The Wizard of Oz. I guess right. I don't know. I wonder where I wonder
1: where that started because it's a thing that everybody knows.
0: Yeah, it's true.
1: I get obsessed with those kinds of things. Like, how does everybody know that? How does it, you know? You know what I mean?
0: The internet, Tony. Really? <laughs> <laughs> um, I so back to the book. I, I think that kind of like it never treats the darkness though as this thing that's insurmountable or something that you need to worry about. It's just there it's going to be there and you know like that saying that he says about the lion well that's unfortunate this is kind of life
1: yeah the world's a dangerous place yeah and and you can overcome it or or not and sometimes you can't
0: yeah so and then so they actually come across the mouse queen and they they ask her to go rescue the lion so right
1: right and i think that doesn't she kind of not barter but she's like how do we know that thing's not going to wake up and just murder my entire, <laughs> my
0: entire, Oh, no, uh, no, don't worry about him. He's a coward. And they're like, Oh, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what happens. He's a coward. So yeah. like, Oh yeah, that's fine. Then we'll go rescue him. And they do. And uh, he says, I have always thought of myself very big and terrible yet. Such small things as flowers came near to killing me and such small animals as mice have saved my life. How strange it all is.
1: It's beautiful. Very wise lion. <laughs> So the, the edition that I read has, it's heavily annotated and there are a lot of notes in the back and this is a world where animals can talk. And I think at some point, does someone make a reference to thinking it's odd that Toto doesn't say anything? Oh yeah, I think so. Um, and in the, the annotations, uh, make it clear that at another, at a point down the road in other Oz books, um, Toto can talk. He just chose not to on this particular
0: adventure. <laughs> well, it's interesting because um in the follow-ups because I've read a bunch of the follow-ups um there's lots of animals that end up going to Oz and they all talk. <clears throat> These are animals that travel from our world to Oz and every time they get there they just start talking. And Toto's the only one that doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, so then they get to Oz. And it it's a, it's a lot like the it's a lot like the the so they come across the guard and the guard is basically like you can't go in there without these green goggles. And this is like one of the best bits of the whole book. Uh, cause essentially Oz isn't super beautiful. It's the goggles that make look everything look green, but they try and convince them like, Oh no, you need these. Cause it's so brilliant and beautiful and bright.
1: Right. But, but they were told that
0: right at the end, they find out the wizard kind of tells them at the end of the book, like, Oh you, yeah, this is another kind of trick that I'm playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is this line that, um, That uh, they ask Dorothy at the gate, um, you know, because she's like, I want to get back to Kansas. And they're like, well, where is Kansas? She says, I don't know, but it's my home and I'm sure it's somewhere. It's very... It's childlike.
1: It is childlike, but it's also very playful in a way that um, Alice in Wonderland is. The way it plays with language Mm -hmm. and meaning. um, They do that a lot. I mean, any, any of the sort of instances you've pointed out of the Scarecrow line and Tin Man sort of talking about what they're looking for. It has that sort of, uh, not not a riddle, but you know what I mean? Like there's a there's a game to what they're saying. Yeah. Um, and th- that's the same thing. Like I don't, yeah, I don't know where home is, but it's I know it's, it's got to be somewhere. Yeah.
0: yeah. And then there's no like, um, you know, moment where they all get makeovers and then the lion sings, hi, hey, we're the king of the forest. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I love that part. I don't know why. That's the other thing. Meg and I sing these songs to each other all the time. I sing that one, and I sing the the Scarecrow one.
1: Yeah, I think... I only had a brain. I I think I always, much like Dorothy, uh, was particularly fond of the Scarecrow. Yeah, Um, me too. But, you know, if I'm being honest, I didn't... I've never had a huge connection to The Wizard of Oz. I've always appreciated it and uh, enjoyed it, but there's something about it that... When I asked you earlier, what about it draws Meg to it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was sort of looking for an explanation for myself. You know what yeah. I mean? I, I um, I'm not surprised by the success of it necessarily, but I yeah. don't. You don't connect I, to it. I, I don't connect to it, and so I don't. Uh, I don't really understand it.
0: Sure. I mean, I always enjoyed it. Um, obviously, like that, my connection now is through Meg. And even now she'll be like, yeah, like people associate that with me. That doesn't define me, but that's something that, you know, was important to me as a kid. Um, But to me, like now, like kind of like she wore like ruby red slippers at our wedding. (laughs) You know, I'm a wedding photographer and I shot a wedding once where uh, the father of the bride came out and he said um, he gave a speech where he was talking about how his daughter was a singer. And the first time they heard her sing when she was a little girl, like really sing was um, she sang somewhere over the rainbow. And he said, I'm not a singer, but I'm going to sing it right now. And he sang it. And I mean, the impact of that song and I couldn't help it because of my connection um, to it. And, you know, there was music from wizard of Oz that played a part of our wedding day and all that. So like, I'm, you know, I can't be as, I can't be objective about any of this. In a lot of ways, you know, it just has a very personal connection now. But I always liked all the ancillary stuff that was connected to it. I liked The Wiz when I was little. Yeah. I don't remember it. I love Return to Oz. And I had, that was my recommendation yeah, in the yeah. THX episode. Um, so for me, digging into all these books, and I, I don't know, it's just been kind of like, I've been really, really enjoying it.
1: And I think that's maybe this, what you just said is kind of what I needed. I think I've never, I've never known anybody who... Was like oh I love The Wizard of Oz, because everybody likes The Wizard of Oz.
0: Yeah, sure. I think
1: I think I, I do think there there has to be a part of your a part of your brain or your heart that doesn't work right if you don't. You know, it's yeah. it's it's so charming and yeah.
0: I have a few friends who're just like yeah I don't like The Wizard of Oz, but Return to Oz, and I'm just like, come on guys, right? <laughs> you know, and it's fine. Like I mean, whatever. But it kind of it it is in some ways it's kind of like when people say like oh I don't like The Beatles. It's just like sure.
2: Like,
1: yeah, that it, seems, it seems like you have to put effort into not liking yeah, those things. There, exactly, it is a it is a a shared experience that'll. You know, you could meet someone, you could meet someone for the first time, and if they happen to be on that wavelength with Oz, and it comes up, you could have a great conversation with them for yeah. a, an extended period of time. Yeah, and that, I mean, I, I do the same thing with, you know, with Star Wars or. Yeah. Um, You know, the Big Lebowski or something. It's Mm -hmm. sort of, uh, it's, it's a way in. Uh, it's not a, it's not an exclusive club by any means, but I think it's one of those things when you know when you're on the same page with somebody about it.
0: Well, let's get back to the book. Sure. They all go to confront the wizard, but unlike the movie where they're all doing it together, they have to do it individually, but he appears before them, uh, in different forms. Right. So he presents
1: himself, um, As the following things. To Dorothy, he appears as the giant head, which is very familiar. Uh, Scarecrow is presented with a beautiful woman. Tin Man is presented with uh, like a horrible monster. And then uh, the lion is presented with a ball of fire. Yeah. What I sort of struggled with here was it almost felt like he was presenting himself as what each of them feared most, but not in the right order. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, had he presented himself as the fire to the scarecrow, the scarecrow would have been terrified. Or yeah. if he had appeared to the Tin Man as this beautiful woman, and Tin Man has sort of lost the capacity to, to love, he thinks. But I don't know. Did you feel like there was any sort of meaning to, to None, what those visions were supposed to be to any of the characters?
0: Not, not particularly. But I, I, he is a humbug, as he says, mm-hmm. and and he gets a lot of things wrong. Uh, oh, the, that's true. So maybe, you know, as the as the— the book always says i also kind of want to dig into a little bit of the the political aspect of the book um a lot has been made over um the history of of this novel um, of scholars uh, studying it and exploring it and writing about it and a lot of people have different interpretations and a lot of them are at odds with each other some of them are exact opposite um but one of the ones that i thought was pretty compelling Is that you know Dorothy represents um, an average American kind of innocent, uh, maybe a bit naive, Uh, and um, Emerald City kind of represents you know power and 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 money, and obviously there's it's fake because they're all wearing the green goggles to in order to make it seem like it's better than it is, and Oz is like this person that's in charge of that who's a, a manipulator, basically saying like well. Do this thing for me. Um, I thought that one was probably the most kind of pertinent political um, interpretation. There is one that said um, by historian Quentin Taylor, uh, where he said the scarecrow represented American farmers. uh, um, And then the Tin Man represented industrial workers. And the most obvious one, uh, even a five-year-old could get this, is that the cowardly lion uh, was a metaphor for William Jennings Bryan. (laughs) yeah obviously obviously little kids are gonna know who william jennings Bryan is
1: (laughs) i think the competing analysis of of this is fascinating because there is on the one hand uh people who think that he has created this sort of socialist utopia that's everything that america isn't there are other people who think that all of the entire world he's created is sort of this metaphor for consumerism and And, you know, across the board, not limited to Emerald City. Because I think what's interesting is that, sure, Emerald City is green. But that that specific influence and that lie and that charade is limited to the Emerald City where this American phony has sort of come and brought his own interpretation of things. Mm -hmm. One interpretation that I read that sort of uh, tries to torpedo all of the... um, the critiques of this being sort of a capitalist manifesto or that the good people of Oz and all the neighboring communities, they, they give, whether it's, they give their home and their food to Dorothy and her companions for shelter, whether it's, um, the magical gifts, you know, the, the witch of the North gives her the slippers and then gives her that kiss on the forehead that protects her. The good people are always giving, um, and the wicked witches of this world are hoarding their magic. Mm-hmm. Um which is a very simple sort of analysis of it um but also very effectively sort of takes down these other critiques. Um they're trying to sort of revise the view of Oz as as a sort of um you know, capitalism gone crazy kind of thing.
0: It's a it's it's a broad fantasy story you know he he simplified a lot of things so i think a lot of people can can project their their ideas onto it. i read like three different uh, political interpretations that all contradicted each other and a lot of them to be honest were very they're very topical for 1900 (laughs) so they're they're just like you know things that have to do with 19th century uh, debate regarding monetary policy is just not applicable to us right um but that but what's great is, like, the book doesn't rely on any of that, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it is so simple and it once vague and broad that, yeah, I mean, any generation can sort of project their own anxieties onto it and find meaning there.
0: They all ask for, uh, you know, Dorothy wants to go home, Scarecrow wants his brains, the Tin Man wants his heart, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just like the movie, the Wizard of Oz is, says, sure, if you do this thing for me. So he's sort of manipulating because he knows Dorothy killed the Wicked Witch of the East, even though she did it inadvertently. He says, but you were strong enough to kill the Wicked Witch of the East. And she says, that just happened. I could not help it. <laughs> 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 yeah. So, but uh, they all are like, all right, let's go. Let's go do this. Let's go kill the witch, I guess. So they, uh, they embark to kill the witch. The witch is so unimpressive. She's just kind of like, She's manipulative, but, like, she relies on everyone else to do the work for her.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. And I think, um, you know, again, not being able to separate the two, really. I mean, the the Wicked Witch of the West of the movie is such a just cackling.
0: I mean, if, if someone says a witch to you, isn't that That's the first? That's the witch you think of. Yeah.
1: Um, and she is such a, a forceful presence um, that I couldn't help but be disappointed by how little of her was in this and then how quickly she was dealt with.
0: Before they take off um, to find the witch, um, they, they're talking to someone at Oz about the witch. And there's this little exchange that I really love. I guess it's a guard or someone that works at Oz. And he says, and he's talking about in relation to the witch and how terrible she is. But he says, for when she knows you are in the country of the Winkies, that's where the, the witch resides. Um, she will find you and make you all her slaves. Perhaps not, said the scarecrow, for we mean to destroy her. Oh, that is different. So the guardian of the gates, <laughs> which is really funny because he's just like, hey, we're going to destroy her. Oh, OK, then n- n- never mind. Go on your way and destroy her. That's more of that same kind of like simple logic that all these characters um, use of just like, I'm going to do this. Oh, you can't do that. Sure, I can because of this. All right, fine. Go do that. Right. The, the, no one had ever. They never questioned each other.
1: Right. And because no one had ever thought to, to destroy her, to assault the witch as opposed to waiting for her to just show up and make them slaves
0: yeah like oh well you clearly know what you're doing um so first the witch sends some wolves after them and you know they take care of the, the wolves and then she sends some crows after them and they fight the crows off because uh, the scarecrow obviously he's just like hey i'm a scarecrow uh, and then she sends bees after them how do they defeat the bees oh it's just that they can't sting the tin man they bounce off and it, and it breaks their stingers um, and then she sends the winkies after them now um the winkies are the oh, ee, oh whoa guys um from the movie right uh they're just her slaves like she's imprisoned them
1: that happens in the movie as well
0: and then she sends the flying monkeys and there's a big difference with the flying monkeys they're under her power because she has this magic hat
1: yeah they almost work they work like genie rules whoever's in possession of the cap gets three commands of them
0: you don't find out till a little later in the book but the origin of the hat is so bizarre it's really cool there's this guy and he he's kind of doing his own thing and the monkeys like to play pranks so they play a prank on him and he gets so upset that he tells his um his wife who happens to be a sorcerer so she places this um curse yeah she places a curse on them basically they have to do the bidding of the the hat
1: (laughs) so weird it is really strange and I almost wondered if it was like a like a riff on the monkey's paw, you know, like kind of granting wishes, but, but that wasn't oh. published until a couple of years later. I think what's interesting is that almost all of these characters get some sort of humanity. I mean, the, the flying monkeys are just this sort of <laughs> terrifying uh, army meant for nothing but pure evil in the movie, but they, they, they made them sympathetic and...
0: They just like In to play jokes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's literally what he says. Yeah, we just like to play practical jokes, and that's how we got stuck into this kind of slave labor. But they all get split up, and and um, well, oh, the, the scarecrow gets he, taken apart by the monkey.
1: Okay, and then they throw the Tin Man down the ravine, and he breaks.
0: Yes, and then they lock up the cowardly lion, and then so it's just uh, Dorothy and the witch is basically like, hey, now you're now you're working for me. And then while she's mopping, like she's not even tied up for anything, she's just mopping, and then she throws the the water on her and, i'm melting
1: i'm melting that's it yeah that's that's as it as quickly as she appears she is she's dispatched. dispersed with yeah yep.
0: uh and then the winkies um they help to uh recover the tin man and the scarecrow mm-hmm. they set the lion free they get the hat from the monkeys and uh they ask the monkeys to take them back cuz it's a it's a long journey so at one point they do
1: she just she does try to ask the monkeys to take her back to kansas and Again, like the explanation is bizarre. He's like, there's never been a flying monkey in Kansas. We can't make that work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just like simple logic. Almost like it's always like Occam's razor or something like that Mm -hmm. with all of it. Yeah, so they get back to Oz and it's the same as the movie where they find out he's full shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they're just just like... Just a fucking liar. (laughs) (laughs) He refers to himself as a humbug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he's pretty humble about it. Um, but he, they're just like, you got to do these things for us. And he's like, well, I, I can't do those things. That's not real things. I can't give you a heart. I can't give you brains or courage, but they're like, no, you promised us. So you got it. So he does. Um, he, he says, I'll do this. Give me a night. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I'll provide these things for you.
1: Yeah. And I think the gifts that he gives them are, it's interesting because in the movie, what he gives him are symbolic things of what they have wanted. So he gives scarecrow a diploma, uh, tin man gets a, a heart-shaped watch, and he gives a, a medal to the lion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but here, he gives them he gives them things that present them with the opportunity to sort of live up to what they're looking for. For the scarecrow, he gives him awe, uh not odds, he gives him the Emerald City because it needs a wise ruler. Yeah, and he trusts that the scarecrow has it within him to be that. Yeah, um,
0: and just for for to fill in a little detail. The Oz himself explains that he's like, oh, I'm from Omaha and I got here by a hot air balloon. Oh, right. And no one has ever seen me. And I've only managed to do this by being a sneaky and duplicitous. Like he came in and he said, I'm a wizard uh, and took over, but no one has ever seen him. So everyone just thought of him as this great and powerful wizard when he was just, just a guy. He's just a guy.
1: Tin Man is given the land of the Winkies who were the witch's slave army because Oz knows that they need someone who is compassionate and who can take care of them. Um, and and Tin Man has ex- exhibited all the traits of having a heart that he thinks he doesn't, and then the lion is given the forest. As, as the rightful king and the other animals know to trust the lion and that he can just be himself, and that's going to be enough. They're going to know that the lion is going to be courageous for them, which is interesting because I, I think it's— and I'm, I mean, you would know more than I would, whether or not we get to revisit these characters in later Oz mm-hmm. stories or not, but, um, we do. It, yeah. I and mean, it seems like it's, it's giving them something where they can grow into and prove to themselves that they have what they're lacking as opposed to just being, oh, here's a trinket that says you have this thing now. And then suddenly the, I mean, granted, it's my funny, it's the, it's my favorite gag in the movie, but when the scarecrow gets his diploma oh, yeah. and it just rattles off the, um, just rattles off the isosceles triangle thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's great. Yeah. And then he, he, he tells Dorothy, he's like, well, you know, I'm from Omaha, so I'll take you back in my heart air balloon. Cause he didn't particularly care to be the wizard of Oz anymore. But one of my favorite things, uh, in the whole book is when, um, you know, after he gives these things, Oz kind of says to himself, he goes, how can I help being a humbug? when all these people make me do things that everybody knows can't be done it was easy to make the scarecrow and the lion and the woodsman happy because they imagine i could do anything and i and i love that kind of notion like again they always perceive themselves as being without a brain and without a heart because they didn't know any better like and he's saying like well they had those things all along they're imagining that i'm giving them these things and therefore that's what's making them that's giving them the confidence they need i didn't actually do anything
1: right their problem is a, is is a matter of perspective whereas he <laughs> couldn't be like kansas was inside you all along <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true, true and then suddenly oz turned black and white
0: <laughs> yeah so they go to just like the movie they go to take off uh in the hot air balloon and then toto skedaddles no that's the movie
1: it essentially plays out the same that the hot air balloon takes off without dorothy
0: instead of Glinda showing up, that's when they learn about who Glinda is. Uh, so then they embark to the South to find Glinda. So they go on like another little journey, uh, and they encounter some more things, uh, the, uh, the China dolls, Mm -hmm. which are pretty cool. It's like a town of people made of China, um, which they actually reference in Oz, the great and powerful, uh, the Sam Raimi movie. Oh, really? Yeah. There's a little China city and there's a character named China doll that factors into the how is that um it's better than its reputation it has some uh really great stuff in it um especially the opening and the very ending is is pretty great Sam Raimi uh I'll say antics
1: yeah I mean I imagine a sort of huckster character like you know like the wizard yeah is just tailor-made for Sam Raimi he kind of has that
0: he envisions himself as this guy's like I'm I'm lucky to be here I don't know how I got here and and Franco's is is pretty good as the guy who you're constantly saying, You're full of shit. You say that now about him. And um Michelle Williams is perfect as Glinda. I mean she's amazing. Oh cool. I I, yeah.
1: I, I, I had no idea who was in that movie outside <clears throat> yeah. of Franco. And Rachel
0: Weiss is great. Um Mila Kunis is in it and she plays the wicked witch of the one who gets the house dropped on her? No. Wicked, so she plays the wicked witch of the west. Yeah, and she's really miscast. Yeah, I, I think she's miscast. Um, that's one of the the big um, problems of the movie. It followed um, uh, Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, which people just hated. So I think they sort of had daggers for this because there's a lot of stuff I read about it that I just it doesn't make sense. And I'm not gonna like say like oh this is as good as Wizard of Oz or anything, but it's not nearly as bad as its detractors make it out to be. Mm-hmm. It has its charms. And, and and we'll talk probably more about some of the overlap between the later books and the Return to Oz and and Oz is Great and Powerful. Um, but yeah, so they they come across the China Dolls, and then um, uh, the lion leaves them to go to uh, to become the king of the forest.
1: Are there are those weird creatures with like, they like throw their heads at them.
0: The Quadlings. So they travel through the country of the Quadlings, and there these
1: guys with these weird heads that.
0: They, yeah, they they, they kind feel, of like throw their heads at them. They
1: feel like like a Super Mario bad
0: guy. Yeah, it's really strange. They just have these big, thick heads that they their necks kind of stretch out, and and then they they call upon the monkeys to take them to Glinda again. It's mm. like I don't know why they didn't think about that in the first place. But uh, so then they show up to Glinda, and Glinda gives them you know she she tells her about the sh- the power of the shoes.
1: Yeah, once Glinda tells her how the shoes work,
0: she just like she goes home, and then that's literally it. Yeah, she's just like I missed you. I'm home and then it ends. The end. The end. Yeah.
1: And I don't know if this has anything to do with what I was saying earlier about about not loving this world. Mm-hmm. Um I enjoyed this. I didn't I didn't really do anything for me. I think maybe I was expecting I think I ex- I was expecting something a little beefier than what was there. Yeah. Um maybe something closer to
0: like a CS Lewis. I thought you were going to say CSI.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> A CSI. Um, uh, CSI
0: Oz. They did something like that with, um, oh, what's her uh, Zoe Deschanel They did like a dark reimagining uh, on the sci fi channel with, yeah, with and Oz. I think, uh,
1: Alan Cumming, I think was yeah, Tin Man. Yeah. Oh, um, God.
0: <laughs> I but, think we got it like 10 minutes into it. And we're like, no.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was a little too slight. I mean, I could, I could see myself reading this to, I have young nieces and a nephew or, you know, my own kids someday. Um, or enjoying it as a little kid, you know. I think there is something about like a uh, uh, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, or even Alice in Wonderland, that is much more rewarding mm-hmm. to an adult reader. And I feel like this was kind of lacking that for me. So yeah, I'm not saying I was disappointed by it. I think I just had unfair expectations of it. Uh-huh. And I don't know if maybe that is sort of resolved. I mean, the fact that there are 13 additional Oz books that he wrote, yeah. Never mind all the other stuff, uh, and maybe it all sort of fleshes things out more and, mm-hmm. and builds off of it. I yeah, I also don't know that I was necessarily intrigued enough to want to read more.
0: I see. I think for me, what you're describing why you didn't like is why I did like it, and I think that's because most modern stuff is so weighty and and um, portentous. Uh, there's so much like chosen one bullshit that's kind of dragged down so much modern fantasy oh and and so reading this i was just like this is i love how light this is and and you mentioned the lion the witch in the wardrobe and i think this is the precursor to that especially the way he he writes you could see a lot of you know that philosophical kind of um undertone to all the characters dialogue that i, I see a lot in lewis um I, I thought there was a lot of overlap there and again like i said i can't be i can't be super subjective because to me i was filling in this huge blind spot of this connection to, to Mick.
1: sure. And I, I completely agree with you about stuff being heavier than it needs to be. I think the Hobbit plays a lot like, like this in that Bilbo gets sort of drawn into something and he's in over his head and he's just there. A lot of it almost as a spectator and he, mm-hmm. he feels very much like a Dorothy character, but then those, Oh, those movies, Just, like, they add all that shit that you were just saying is wrong with modern fantasy to a story that should have been, like, a breezy adventure.
0: Marvel Comics, maybe five or six years ago, probably older now, actually, maybe probably closer to ten, decided to adapt L. Frank Baum's books and make them as close to the books as possible. The writer of the adaptation is Eric Shanawer, and the artist is Scotty Young. So I read... um, all the follow-ups to Wonderful Wizard of Oz in comic form. And, uh, you know, I Meg has read all of the actual books. Uh, and so I asked her, I'm like, you know, if I read these, am I going to be, are they close enough? And she said, no, they're very accurate. Um, and you could tell when uh, he has, the, the writer has um, introductions in each of the comics, and he's talking about how he wanted to just get Bomb right. And even... On the covers of all the, the comics, you know, it says L. Frank Baum first. So there really are um, adaptations and not like versions of anything. So I read um, The Marvelous Land of Oz, Ozma of Oz, The Wizard, and Dorothy and Oz, and I'm currently on uh, Road to Oz. And what I love about them, what I love about this world is just how gopher broke everything is. They're strange uh, and weird. And I love the imagination here because I feel like a lot of, Modern fantasy is just so safe and there's so many tropes that we're familiar with and there's so much in here that I I just was unexpected. Uh, and it's weird to read fantasy stuff and, and, and be surprised all the time. But I can talk briefly about kind of the synopsis for some of them. Uh, I don't know if you, if you don't want to be spoiled about anything. There's a massive twist in Marvelous Land of Oz that I did not see coming, which is so weird. Um, but it's up to you. I don't, I don't know if I want to Spoil that. I mean, do you think it's worth reading? Yeah. I mean, if you want to just breeze through the comic, I can let you borrow the comic.
1: I mean, maybe I'll do that. Yeah. (laughs) Because I think that's that's one thing that really, that I did walk away from reading this was that the story is just as vibrant and weird and uh, otherworldly as the movie was. And as I was hoping it would be, I think for me... It's, I, I imagine reading through the comics would be a very different experience for me because what I felt was lacking uh, was the fact that these were written specifically for children.
0: And, it, you know, it's sure.
1: it's it seems like such a dumb thing for an adult to say, like, oh, it." you know, I didn't enjoy this children's book. But, you know, bringing up an Alice in Wonderland, which has all these weird philosophical riddles to it and – As a kid, you enjoy those stories because of the creatures and how magical the world is. But there are other things that an adult can get out of that. And I think for me, you know, at this point in my life with no, uh, you know, sort of kids in my direct orbit, uh, when I go to these types of things, that's what I'm looking for. Which is why, I don't know, I'm just a crusty old angry guy who is mad that this kid's book (laughs) didn't have more in it. I don't know. Sure, but
0: like, I mean... We've been talking for like an hour and a half and we did talk a lot about of heavier things and philosophical things that sure. were put in this book. Um so I guess there was enough there for me. And again, like I've like I'm in it. Like after I'm done with the comics, I'm going to continue reading all of Bomb's books. I just they're easy and quick and and I love this world. I think it's just strange. Um the other books introduce uh, Tip and Jack Pumpkinhead who's kind of like a precursor to Jack from a Nightmare Before Christmas. He looks just like Jacks. He's got a giant pumpkin head, and uh, the sawhorse, which is basically a, ho- uh, a you know a wooden horse that they make come to life, and then um, the Gump is basically this head this mounted uh, moose head that they they attach to a couch and they give wings with uh, that are palms, uh, and they make it alive and it flies. And there's Mombi. Uh, And then there's a witch that can take her head off and exchange it with other witches. And then there's a gnome king. And Belina the hen, who's actually... Real name is Bill, but Dorothy is just like, you can't be Bill, you're a girl. So I'm going to call you Belina. Um, And TikTok, who's like one of the first early versions of a robot Uh, in the land of Eve and more magic items and belts and just lots of weird stuff. And Dorothy has a cat named Eureka. And there's a moment in one of the books where... Eureka goes on trial because she ate Ozma's pig, and it's so strange. they get weirder as they go, and I and I really like that, so um yes, i I've been really enjoying it.
1: Cool. yeah, I yeah. Mean, maybe I will take you up on the offer to go through the comics. Um,
0: Marvelous Land of Oz and Ozma of Oz, um, which is the second and third books, are combined, and that's the movie Return to Oz. Oh, okay, so the Return to Oz takes a lot of elements. They take Mombi and TikTok and um The Wheelers which terrified the shit out of me when I was a little kid through these guys with these super long arms and legs with wheels instead of hands and feet. And they're just creepy as fuck. Um, and the gnome King is in, in return to Oz and Bellina and, um, Jack pumpkin head in the gump and all that. So, um, uh, so it kind of pilfered from both books and combined them. I think the books are probably better. Cause like I said, there's a twist in marvelous land of Oz that I don't want to give away. That's so weird. Uh, and feels modern in so many ways. Um, but a lot of the books like read, like we were talking about earlier about like, um, and I mean this as a compliment because a lot of times you could talk about narratives and storytelling um, and this could be a negative, but they feel like a, a little kid telling you and then this happened and then this happened. And a lot of times like that's bad for storytelling, but I think it works for us because it the way the characters interact with each other are always so simple and, and innocent.
1: Yeah, that innocence really permeates yeah. the world um until you get to the winkies who are, who are like we're slaves you know? <laughs> yeah. oh man Yes. Yeah, so, ooh, sorry ending uh, on a dark note yeah so yeah I, yeah none of this is to say that i didn't enjoy it i just oh yeah um, yeah um you know you maybe have maybe,
0: no soul tony yeah I think that's
1: what we're... I think that's the lesson we're learning. I think the wizard would be like, I have nothing for you. (laughs) There's there's no filling that
0: void in your... Fuck off back home. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. So, I mean, if someone uh, read the original book and they wanted to kind of explore more uh, more stories that are similar, what would you recommend?
1: I think I would go with uh, a couple of things I've already mentioned. Um, I think that the Alice in Wonderland books Mm -hmm. I'm I'm trying, I'm trying to blank on similarly, like their actual titles are like Alice through the looking looking glass and Alice's adventures in Wonderland or something. like that. I think they do a lot of that same playful um, wordplay and dialogue, but I think there's, I think there are more interesting uh, ideas there. I think there's more to think about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll, I'll go with, um, the Hobbit. You know, if I were to rec- you know, if, if a kid were coming, a little kid were coming up to me and having read the wizard of Oz and was looking where to go, that wasn't Oz. I would probably give them those two.
0: Cool. Uh, so the first thing I'm going to recommend is, is actually connected to the movie. Um, so if people are fans of the movie, there's a deleted scene, um, that I think is worth seeking out. It's on YouTube. And basically it's the point where Dorothy is, um, being held captive by the witch And she does a reprise of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, but she sings it and she's crying the whole time. And it's just the saddest thing imaginable. It's just a heartbreaking performance. Um, And when you watch it, you're like, yeah, that had to go because it's just so, so sad. Um, But it's worth watching just to see her performance. It's just, it's miraculous. The other thing I'm going to recommend is actually something that's probably influenced by it. And that's uh, Jupiter Ascending. Uh, which is the Wachowskis movie with Mila Kunis and Channing Tatum. And uh, he's essentially her Toto um, and the lion and the Tin Man and Scarecrow all wrapped in one. And she's this small town girl who just kind of gets whisked up into this otherworldly uh, adventure. This time it's in space and it's strange and it has weird <laughs> an incest kind of subtext. And um,
1: Yeah, it's... Uh... Man, it is a very very strange it's movie. It's
0: goofy too. Um
1: Yeah, I mean Channing Channing Tatum plays an intergalactic half man, half dog cop with rocket <laughs> skates. Yeah,
0: they're kinda like rollerblades and he kinda like does these rollerblading things and it's so funny. <laughs> and there was like a there's like a bee man. Yeah, well, no, the bees kind of signal that she's kind of like royalty kind oh, of thing. Right. Yeah. Um but it's really si- silly. It doesn't really take herself itself too seriously. Uh it starts off and she's actually wearing a similar kind of gingham style shirt that's the blue kind of checkered kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So like Dorothy's kind of gingham kind of dress that she wears.
1: Well the Kowski's are sort of into that imagery. There there yeah. are sort of little winks and nods to Wonderland and Oz throughout the matrix
0: yeah. as well. Yeah yeah yeah. So I love them. I think they're always kind of super earnest and go for broke and they make weird movies and when you watch them you're like, yeah, that's That's the Wachowskis.
1: I would watch them try for something audacious and fail. Yeah. Anytime than just see some sort of like generic safe reboot of whatever. You know what I mean? For sure. Like uh, Jupiter Ascending got raked over the coals, but I had a a lot more fun watching that than I I did watching anything similar to it that year, I think.
0: Yeah. It's just a strange little movie and... It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So cool. So uh, what what are we going to talk about next time?
1: Well, so for these first four, we've been dealing with stuff that both of us are sort of experiencing for the first time. And I think we're going to start to trade off. So uh, I think we are going to subject you to the original Metal Gear Solid. Nice. Do you know anything about it?
0: Wait, so wasn't there a Metal Gear from the there's original a, There's a Metal Gear on Nintendo.
1: Okay. Uh, Metal I, I
0: played that. Okay. The original Nintendo, I played in Metal Gear.
1: Metal Gear Solid was the first 3D one. Okay. Um, When did it, do you know when it came out? I want to say it was 98, because I feel like that and The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time kind of came out around the same time, and both were kind of mind-blowing for different ways, and Metal Gear has a lot of weird, just mythology around it and
0: the game itself or the story within the game, the story within the game. Okay. And I think
2: eh,
1: both actually, and the, the, the creator, the developer uh, Hideo Kojima is sort of this um, sort of like video game cult of personality. Um, I'm interested to sort of revisit it through your eyes. And it's been
0: a long time since I've played through it. Um, but they're the, blue. Tony, can you handle that? What's that? My eyes, they're blue. Can you handle that? i don't know where i was going with that you said you want to see it through my eyes and i have blue eyes so
1: i i were you like making a reference to the who song behind Uh oh i don't know
0: nobody knows what it's like
1: to play video games
0: games. sorry yeah no um
1: so i I, this game is fascinating it sort of cracked my brain open when i was 13 14 Mm -hmm. playing it for the first time um some of the some of the Metal Gear games are among my favorites of all
0: time. Cool. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. Great. All right, I'll see you then. Cool. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's What Did We Miss. If you want to know more about the episode, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at What Did We Miss for links to some of the clips, videos, and research we may have mentioned throughout the episode, plus previews of upcoming shows.
0: Drop us a line and let us know what you think, especially if we're talking about one of your pop culture blind spots.